Thanks, Rob. And thanks again to the worship team who always just does such a great job. And I love this time of year. I love the music this time of year. Don't you? I mean, it's just, it's just the best. Those Christmas carols are just the best. And it uh, makes me all nostalgic. So, and thank you guys for, for braving the weather and the snow and coming out here. It's really a thrill to see that you made it out here. I just know the ones you're here. God likes you the best, so, you know, way to go, good for you. Only kidding, of course, only kidding. My, my wife finally was, she finally started walking with a cane this week, and she said she was going to, Tammy was going to bring her this morning, and she goes, I don't know about managing crutches in the snow and the ice, I just don't know if I'm ready to do that or not, so she called me and said, I don't think I'm going to be able to make it. Um, too bad, but I really miss her not sitting with her and worshiping with her. It's really not, not quite the same. So we're going to have just a, a quick prayer before we begin, and then we're, we're going to lead us. I'm going to lead you in some prayer when we, before we start communion, but just to, just to talk with the author before we look at the book. Father, we thank you for uh, your goodness to us. We thank you for the inspired scriptures that we have before us that speak your word, that speak your gospel. And uh, we give you the time this morning, and I am asking that uh, the Spirit be the true teacher this morning, um, that uh, you open all of our hearts uh, to what Mark has to say for us. In Jesus' name, amen. We are going to be looking at Mark, which is kind of the fulfillment of the passage that uh, Rob read in Isaiah. And we are on the second Sunday of Advent. Uh, this is the candle that represents faith. The first one, like Kendra mentioned, represents hope. This one represents faith. I'm going to begin with a, with a poem um, this morning, um, written by William Butler Yeats. He writes, Turning and turning in the widening gyra, the falcon cannot hear the falconer. Things fall apart, the sinner cannot hold. Mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. The blood-dimmed tide is loosed, and everywhere the ceremony of innocence is drowned. The best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate and intensity. That's just the first part of the poem that Yeats wrote at the end of World War I. And he was trying to describe just the, the horror that was unleashed on the world at that time. It was, I mean, if you've ever read anything about World War I, it's like the most senseless war of all times, it seems like to me, and one of the most bloody. Uh, 16 million people died, civilians and soldiers. 23 million people were injured. Um, it was just total, uh, total anarchy. And he wrote this to kind of describe this, and, he, and the way he describes it is that that we had all put our, our faith, or the world back then, put their faith in the politics of the day, the governments of the day, and in Europe. And, uh, and then he says, it's, anarchy has just been unleashed. The center cannot hold. And we had centered on these things, and they just can't hold. And everything is cut loose. The second half of the poem actually is, uh, is an address to the church, to Christianity. It's called the second coming. And basically he's saying that that, uh, that Christianity didn't come through, that maybe the, all the, the Christian morals were just an illusion and they're not really true. They don't have anything hold. The sinner will not hold because all the countries that were fighting each other were Christian countries. Most of them had, had state religions. They were officially 
Christian countries, and they were killing each other. And so he questioned all that, and that this is the things that we put our faith in, the things that we are trusting in, the things that we, the, the industrial revolution, the, the modern world, the, everything that's happening in the early 20th century just, just blew apart. And the center cannot hold. It just loses it. The Jews in the first century probably felt the same way. They probably felt the same way that the center was not holding. The things that they had put their trust in, the things that they were focused on, was not holding it together. And just imagine, for example, if you were a, a Jew in, uh, in, the early 20, in the early first century, and around 70 A.D., a few years after Mark had written his book, and you're hearing things, and, and there, had been a, there had been an insurrection in Jerusalem. The Jews had revolted, and Rome had come in and, and tried to squash the rebellion. And things were bad in Jerusalem, really bad in Jerusalem. And uh, the things weren't much better in Rome, because Rome had just, you know, Nero had committed suicide. And then there were four emperors, four men who claimed to be emperor, didn't last very long. Three of them, three of them were assassinated. And finally, Vespasian, who was the general leading the crushing of Jerusalem, becomes emperor, and his son Titus then takes over. And so things are not much better in Rome. And so all these things that were supposed to bring stability, Jerusalem and Rome and the religion and the temple, they can't hold. The center cannot hold. And suppose that you were from one of these villages in Galilee, and you heard about this sect uh, over here and uh, uh, these people who follow this Jewish rabbi named Jesus and you're not so sure about them you heard about them but you're not so sure and you're living in this village full of Jews and Gentiles both and and there's lots of division and families are fractured and neighbors don't trust each other and you but you hear about this thing where Jews and Gentiles are worshiping together and you're not really concerned you're not really sure what you think about that you know that uh, the Romans are kind of suspicious of them. Uh, the Jewish religious leaders call them heretics, that it, they're, they're heres it's full of heresy. So you're not real sure. But then somebody hands you the scroll of the book of Mark. Or maybe you go to one of their meetings and somebody stands up and reads this story of the book of Mark. And it starts off with this really provocative title. This really title that just kind of is a front that says, In the beginning... The beginning of the good news of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And if you're a Roman citizen hearing that, you're going, wait a minute. This is the evangel. This is the gospel that we, we, we translate it gospel. This is the evangel. And you're saying this evangel is about Jesus. When we've always heard the evangel is about the emperor. That when there's an emperor that takes the throne, he sends out his soldiers and his messengers to go all around to the, to the villages and the towns yelling, this is good news. There's an emperor on the throne and he's going to make your problems go away and he's going he's to bring peace to your village. He's going to be peace to the empire and prosperity. This is the evangel. And all of a sudden you get this book going, this is the evangel about Jesus. This rabbi who was executed himself as an insurrectionist. How can that be a good thing? So how is that? And then, all, and then furthermore, he is a Jewish Messiah. He is part of this long history of Israel, 
this long story of Israel, this is the culmination. This, this, this person that was, that was promised in Isaiah 40 that we just heard in Isaiah chapter 11 and other places that this, there's going to be this Messiah and it's the culmination of this Jewish story is in this person Jesus who was crucified on a cross. And the story tells us that he's going to bring comfort to his people. That he's going to carry lambs. He's going to do all these things. And it's part of this Jewish story. This, like this, the story of Israel is the rudder of the ship. And not only that, you're calling him the son of God? I have a coin here that says, the picture of the emperor is on there, and it says he's the son of God. How can that be? When an emperor dies, he's called a god. And so the emperor that follows him it must be the son of God. And my coin says he's the son of God. And you're telling me Jesus is the son of God. That's pretty provocative. And yes, there is this catastrophe going on. But yes, this center cannot hold. So maybe there's something else. So we look at Mark. And we look at the beginning of Mark's story. And this is not the nativity scene we see in Matthew and Luke. There are no shepherds, there are no magi, there are no stables, there's no donkeys, no sheep. It's not like John, Mark doesn't take us to that, you know, the heights of theology that, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, nothing like that. It's just this beginning, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is going to take us on this story. This is a different sort of birth story. And he is going to take us on this story until we get to the end of his book and we say, yeah, this is all fulfilled. And believe it or not, this cross is the symbol of the fulfillment. When that sign is nailed onto the cross, the Son, the, the, the Savior, the Messiah, the King of the Jews, we know that Mark has taken us through this journey up to the cross. But this is not Easter. This is Christmas. This is, this is Advent. So we're getting ahead of ourselves a little bit here. But the point is that Mark is presenting this counteroffensive, this alternative kingdom, this alternative power. This kingdom is different than the emperor. The power is different than Roman soldiers. It's really a different counteroffensive counter, of the cross. And so Mark is going to tell us about this man, he begins, you think he's going to talk about Jesus right off the bat, but he talks about this man named John the Baptist. He gives us this message. He says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. The voice of one shouting in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. And in the wilderness, John the baptizer began preaching a baptism of repentance and the forgiveness for the forgiveness of sins People from the whole Judean countryside and all of Jerusalem are going out to him. And he was baptizing them in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. John wore garment made of camel's hair and with leather belt around his waist and he ate locusts and wild honey. So you think he's going to be talking about Jesus, but he goes back to this, this person named John the Baptist who was going to prepare the way. And my question is, okay, why does Jesus need to be somebody to prepare a way for him? Why didn't he just show up? And how is John doing that? How is John preparing the way for Jesus? What is he doing that's preparing the way? Well, he tells us this messenger. This messenger is coming. 
And what he's saying is that John is preaching in the same vein as Malachi and Isaiah. And really, this, this quote that he, that he gives us is actually a blend of Malachi and Isaiah. He mentions Isaiah, but it's actually a blend of the two. And he's saying this is the messenger. In other words, this is in the long line of prophets. What he's doing is he is tying Jesus to the long line of the story of Israel. When we modern evangelicals think of the gospel, we think of Jesus on the cross in Genesis chapter 3. And we connect those two. Genesis chapter 3 is the fall. The cross is the, is the solution. But what Mark is doing is to tell us, no, this is the long story. Everything that we see in Jesus is part of what God had promised all along. He had promised to restore, renew, and he promised to come and dwell with his people. And he's saying Jesus is one, and, these, and John is proclaiming that. Mark is connecting us through this whole promise that everything that Jesus does is in harmony, is consistent with what God has done all through history. And this is the, this is the culmination. This is the whole story, that he has called Israel for this vocation and a promise to dwell with him, and that this story is consistent with what God has been doing all along. And the message is one of repentance and forgiveness. John is announcing this comfort for the people. They are announcing this, this, this return from exile. In the Old Testament, when you, hear, when you read forgiveness of sins, think return from the exile. And what Mark is telling us here is that John is proclaiming this, this, this Jesus who is coming, this person who is going to be coming, who's going to return us from exile, but the real exile is the exile from God. And he is calling them to come back, and this is the end of the exile. And it comes with repentance and the forgiveness of sins. And so he's calling them not to say, uh, not to think back nostalgically. He's thinking about, he's calling us to, to look inside, to take, do some real soul searching here. And for them to look inside and look at their lives and see, are they part of the problem? He is calling us to, to return from exile by looking at ourselves and facing the truth within ourselves. He is calling them away from the centers because the centers cannot hold. And he's saying there's no shortcut here. There's no shortcut. We have to look at ourselves and see if we are worthy to stand before the righteous God. And how are we worthy to stand before the righteous God? Simply by saying, I need his grace and mercy. This is a call for troubled souls. This is a call for people who are humble and recognize that they need grace and mercy. Amen. He brings comfort to the people who are troubled. He brings comfort for the people who know they're humble. But yet he brings judgment to those who say, no, those people need God. I don't. It is a, not a shortcut. It is a long-time process. Receiving forgiveness in the return from exile. There's three things that I notice about this. One is that all people are invited to come out. Not just the leaders, not just the powerful. In fact, those are the ones who oppose the message the most. This is for all people who are troubled. All people to examine. All the nobodies and nuisances, I call them. 
These are the people who know and examine themselves. This is hope for the troubled souls. And this is how we prepare ourselves to receive the message of Jesus. It doesn't sound like good news. It actually sounds like bad news because nobody likes to do this. Nobody likes to go back and, and think about all the things they've done wrong. Nobody likes to think that they've been on this path for 50 years and then they realize it's the wrong path. Nobody likes to admit their mistakes or their failures. Nobody likes that. But sometimes the good news has to hear bad news first for the good news to make sense. And this is what he's telling them to do. This is how he is preparing the people to hear the good news. We have to recognize that we need to hear the good news. Nobody likes that. Nobody likes doing it. I just read this article just this week in the Washington Post, and it was about Janet Yellen, who's the, the Secretary of the Treasury, and she admitted that she was wrong and, and mistaken about, about the economy several months ago. But what was interesting, that the article was not about the mistake or the, the, wrong, the wrong prediction she made or the wrong assessment she made of the economy. The, the point of the story was that she admitted that she was wrong, that she confessed that she made a mistake. That's how rare it is in today's society. Amen. That's how rare it is in, the, in today's politics that you don't ever admit that. And so it was newsworthy that she admitted being wrong. And John says, you know, this is what you got to do. You got to realize, are you part of the problem? And it's a movement for all people. It's not just say, well, let's, wait, let's, let the, let's let the leaders handle it. Let's let the religious leaders handle it. Let's let the political leaders in Jerusalem or Rome handle it. No, those centers cannot hold. Amen. And he is calling them to another center. The other thing I noticed about this is the direction that the people are going. They are going out of Jerusalem. They are going away from what they consider to be the center, and they are going into the wilderness. They are going away from those things what may appear to be on the circumference, but that is the true center. And he's calling them away from Jerusalem, away from the corrupt religious system, away from the corruption of the politics. They're away from those things to something else. So the direction is important. And the third thing I notice is that he was baptizing in the Jordan. It's not that he was baptizing in the Jordan River. No, he was baptizing in the Jordan River. This is so important. Because the wilderness is more than just sand and the Jordan is more than just a river. It has deep psychological and, and, and spiritual significance for the, for the Israeli people. What John is saying here, he's, he's reflecting on God saving Israel out of Egypt and when, the time they spent in the desert and they crossed the Jordan into the promised land. And what John is telling them here is that this is what is happening again that God is dwelling with you. He is fulfilling his covenant. He is fulfilling his promise. And we are crossing the Jordan into the promised land. We are returning from exile. And you say, well, yeah, the Jews weren't really in exile. They were in their homeland. But what they did was that the exile followed them home. Because although they are in the promised land, they are under the boot of Rome. And John is saying, this is how we get back from exile. This is how the enemy is overcome. This is how God restores us. This is how God renews us. And it's not how you expect it. It's not how you, think it, you thought it would look. But this is what he's doing. And then the last two verses, the story gets bigger. And the story gets more provocative. 
and the story gets more assertive. He, he ends this first paragraph. He proclaimed, one more powerful than I am is coming after me. I am not worthy to bend down and untie the strap of his sandals. I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And that's how Mark begins his book. And then the very next verse, in verse 9, he tells us who this is all about. And then he says, and then Jesus came. And the rest is about him. All the way to the cross. All the way to the resurrection. This is how it starts. That this person is more powerful and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He says, I, I plunged you into the Jordan River. This guy is going to plunge you into the Holy Spirit. And it will change everything. He says that can only mean one thing, and that is God himself is coming to dwell with us. The other centers cannot hold. This is the only center that will come, that will hold. This person, Jesus, he does exactly what you think Yahweh would do. This person, Jesus, does what Isaiah said Yahweh was going to do. That he will still the storm on the sea. That he will give sight to the blind. He will cleanse the leper. He will feed the poor. These are the things that Yahweh expects to do. He will carry the lambs in his arms. This is what Jesus does. This is what we expect Yahweh to do from the story. And Jesus fulfills that. There's another prophecy in Isaiah chapter 11 where he talks about the, the shoot coming up from the stump of David. And he says, the spirit of the Lord will be on him. And this is the spirit that he baptizes us in. And what does the Spirit do? It's really great to go back and look at chapter 11 and see what the Spirit does. The Spirit gives them, gives them extraordinary wisdom. It gives them the ability to, to execute plans. It, it prompts them to be fully loyal to God. It, it, he delights in obeying God. Uh, he doesn't judge by appearances. Uh, he makes the right decisions for the downtrodden. Judgment will come to, to against the wicked and the evil one who comes against him. All these things that the Spirit does will be, is the Spirit that we are baptized into. He ends that, thing, that, that section that he says judgment and integrity will be like a belt around him. It will be obvious. And this is the Spirit that we are baptized into, the Spirit that came upon Jesus as we see the baptism in the rest of the, in the, rest of the chapter 1 of Mark. So my point this morning, this is the candle of faith is that all those things that we, we think we trust, the center will not hold. And that faith is more craft than it is feeling. It is a project we undertake, not something that just falls on our head. It is an enterprise. It is something we do, we are participating in, and we nurture it. Julia Norwich says it's the fruit of a one-night showing. And she said she would get shown, you know, she goes shown that she was shown this vision, but it's this fruit that works out for the rest of your life. That it is more craft than it is feeling. It's more enterprise, it's more project that we undertake. 
And it begins with this recognition of who we are, of being promised who we are. Now, we in the 21st century, we are just as much circumference people as the first century Jews. I mean, we live on the, we live on the periphery, we live on the circumstances, I mean, the, the circumference, and we think that that's where life is, and we really don't access very much the center, the real true center. And so we're, we're in this, this widening... Um, this widening gyre, it's, it's, it keeps getting wider and wider and wider and wider until the falcon, according to Yates, the falcon no longer hears the falconer. And we don't hear him. And we think this is where life is. This is where we center our life. And these things are not evil. They're, it would be easier if they were, wouldn't they? If all those things were evil, we could just say, oh, yeah, I'm going to reject this. I'm going to reject this because it's morally horrible. But they're not evil. Our skin is not evil. It's just not our soul. It's not our spirit. That's the, only, that's the only difference. But we get out there and we begin to think those things are the bottom line. We get out there and, and the, the circumference, we think those are things that are most important. The institutions of, of, of business, of partisan politics, of recreation, of re, even religion... You think those things are the center. And they're on the periphery. They're on the circumference. They're out there. And we make them our center. And let me tell you, the center cannot hold. It can't name your soul. It can't entice your spirit. It can't name you who you really are. Who you really are is in Christ. The Jews have a proverb. It says, uh, rake the muck this way, rake the muck that way, it will still be muck. And in the time you spend brooding, you could be stringing pearls for the delight of heaven. So we could spend our time raking the muck, but it's still muck. When we could be stringing pearls for heaven. We could focus on that. John's message is that this is the center, that we have to change the path we're on, that everything belongs to Jesus. Everything else, all of our sinners, they have their in people, their out people, their victors and their victims. It's all a zero-sum game. I've got to win. For, for me to win, you've got to lose. But in the, in the center of Jesus, it all belongs. Winners, losers, Everything belongs. The broken, the poor, everything belongs. And if we stay out there in the circumference, in the peripheral of our lives, and we make those our center, I am convinced that we will not know who we are and we will not know who God is. Because I believe that we only know who we are in Christ. And in Christ, we can know who we are. And we will not know ourselves and we will not know God if we make those things the center, those centers will not hold. Only Christ will hold. I believe the, the only real access to who we are is in Jesus Christ. So I'm going to finish up here with just some things that I think, if I said before that faith is more craft than feeling, it's more enterprise, it's more project, just some things that I think are super important. There are other things we can do, but things that I think are super important for this project to unfold, ourselves, unfold itself in our lives. 
<clears throat> faith is a project we undertake. Find time for prayer and worship. Find time for prayer and worship. This is how we develop it. This is how we make it a project. This is part of the project. Personal worship, corporate worship. People think that for pastors and preachers and ministers and clergy, they think this is, they, people just think, oh, this is easy for you guys. It's, it's like their job description, right? You know? But let me tell you, uh, you know, trying to plan, you know, put together worship for other people, we forget to worship. And, and managing prayer lists and things, we forget to pray. That is so, so easy. And that's why you see 45% of the pastors today in America wanting to leave the ministry. So many of us want to get back to God and get back to the center. And the programs of the church are not the center. That center cannot hold. Prayer and worship. Find physical space for prayer and soul searching. We are right to say that the church is not a building. Okay? It's not. But at the same time, I don't want to make the mistake of saying there's no such thing as sacred spaces. Because we are not just, these bodies aren't just the, and I remember being told this in high school, oh, your body is just the, something to transport your, your soul around, you know? That's not true. We are the embodied children of God. And embodied children need space. We need a space for prayer and soul searching and repentance and forgiveness. Stay grounded in the Gospels and their promises. And I know the polarized community we're living in. I know the polarized society we're living in these days. But the problem is we start mirroring, we start parroting the culture, the society. Stay grounded in the promises of the Gospels. And I, I said this before, keep reading the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and of course Paul's letter, it's all inspired but I mean, get to know Jesus. That is the center. He is the center. He is the only center that will hold. Remain focused on the life in the church as the body of Christ. And I, I capitalized life because I don't want to confuse that with programs. Programs are just vehicles for us to experience life together. But as the life of the body of Christ, we need to recapture the vision of the church. The church has been marginalized, and diminished in its role in our society, a large part because we have forgotten our vision. We have changed the center. We have forgotten what the center is, and it is Jesus Christ. Faith is this project that we work on and remain focused on the life of the church as the body of Christ. Not the building, not the programs, those are all good things, but don't confuse them with the center. So it's time to recenter. Reclaim the vision of the work of Christ that is not only just the present, but also transcendent. And we're going to take communion together as a symbol of that. And I want to take the time that this, this morning as we take communion to recenter on the true center that what will hold, the other centers will not hold but focus on the center that will hold. And that's why we take communion together.
So we're going to, I want to lead us in some prayer this morning. And then I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're going to do it by intention. The first Sunday of each month, we do it by intention. And that's just a matter of coming up and, and taking the bread and um, uh, dipping it in the juice and, and taking it as you come up. And uh, I like this idea of, of making an effort to get out of your seat to come up and, and take communion. Uh, there's also gluten-free options. We have gluten-free bread as well as other bread. And we also have the little kits here uh, like this that if you prefer to take one of these back to your seat, you know, by all means, feel free to do that. But before we do that, I would like to lead us in some time of prayer this morning as we focus in on and, um, for um, holding on to the center that will hold. So let's pray together. And I'm just going to light lead us through this. <clears throat> this has been a year of uncertainties and, and unexpected dangers. And on this Advent Sunday of faith, Lord, we're going to lay aside every anxious thought and we're going to pause and be still and pray the words of Psalm 85. Show us your unfailing love, Lord. Grant us your salvation. I will listen to what the Lord God says. He promises peace to his people. And I'm going to read a passage out of Revelation 21 and then we're just going to take some time in quiet. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away, and he who has seated at the throne says, I am making everything new. And then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So let's turn our attention to our own hearts. As we become aware of our own fears, our own weaknesses, our brokenness in our thoughts and our words and our actions. And take some time to confess them to the Lord this morning. I'm going to read it again. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. For the old order of things has passed away. He who has seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. And then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Lord, we once again turn to you with the needs of the people we know and we love, and we hold them before you, this throne.
Let me read it one more time. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who has seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. Lord, we turn to you again with the needs of our world. Those affected by war, refugees who are displaced and traumatized, financial issues that are global. We pray that those in our government will act with wisdom and not self-interest. Lord God, who shapes us and refines us, you have spoken to us in your Son, Jesus, but so often we don't listen. We haven't always made good and wise choices or made a way for your kingdom and maybe even put obstacles in your kingdom. We ask you to rule in our lives this morning. We ask you to rule in our church and rule in our society. Forgive us. Reaffirm your covenant within us for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Brothers and sisters, I am confident in this, that if we change our minds and repent, God is sure to forgive us. The one who began a good work in us will bring it to completion. Let's renew and reaffirm our covenant with the Lord Jesus this morning as we each take symbolically the communion elements this morning and receive them into our lives anew. Amen.